Welcome to episode 17 of Beers, Business, and Balls. As always, presented by Anchor. Easiest way to make a podcast. Download the free Anchor app to get started. Or go to anchor.fm on your computer. 17 episodes in, and we thank you all for your support, of course. Jake Zimmer alongside Will Tondo. Will, we had a nice weekend up in Block Island and around Rhode Island and gallivanting around. It looks <laughs> like this. How do you feel? A little sunburnt, a little sunburnt, a little tired, but great weekend overall. Uh, you know, she's, you know, the, it's Monday now, but the Monday scaries are definitely hitting in. Yeah. Uh, too many mudslides on Sunday. I think <laughs> that's what it was. We were over at Ballard's Beach Resort in Block Island. Um, first time that I had ever been really um, out in in all this stuff i mean this was the real first time that um that we were just at like a a beach with a lot of people and i will say for as packed as it was at ballard's beach resort they did a really nice job of spacing people out they did i I mean i felt like we were never in close contact with too many people i mean it's there is a pandemic so I'm, i'm a little concerned for sure but they spaced enough people out. I think everything's going to be okay. Um, but it, it was nice to have some semblance of normalcy this past weekend. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, always keep your distance and wear your mask, but you got to enjoy the last bits of summer while you can. Well, that's for sure. Um, we have a great guest for you guys. We'll allude to it last week. It is Amy Stedman, who is the co-founder of beatbox beverages for those of you that went to school up in new england you have probably had beatbox it is the fruity stuff that tastes like gatorade honestly and it's 11 percent. so uh that was a cool interview for sure uh, we get amy's process on how the, the shark tank auditions were and you know because for those of you that don't know beatbox actually made it onto shark tank Got a big investment from one of the more popular sharks. We won't spoil it now because we want you to stick around for the interview. But that was a really good conversation we had with her. She's uh, an awesome, a true entrepreneur too. Um, So we'll do a quick cheers. We're going to go over some very quick business stuff as well. And then we're going to hop right into our interview with Amy Stedman. Uh, And then we'll wrap up with what's going on in the sports scene for our ball segment as usual. So I can't believe we're doing this after a long weekend of uh, drinking, but here we are cracking open some more beers again uh, because we owe it to you folks. We'd take a bullet for you. We would. So let's cheers it. Well, Tondo, what are we drinking to and what are you drinking? Yes. What are you drinking? Yes. So in honor of setting up the studio, beer room, home office, pretty much at 99% completion, uh, we picked up some beers from our favorite spot in providence long live beer works uh again we've had them on the show a few times and we absolutely love it i am drinking the let me get the exact name here comes the waves it's an imperial double in new england ipa eight percent abv uh they partnered with southern swells brewing from jacksonville florida which is a really cool collab um topped with citra Simcoe Galaxy and Mosaic. A lot of people are enjoying it so far. It's very flavorful. Uh, It's got that, you know, that bright color and that hazy IPA that we love on this show. Um, Definitely glad I picked up some of this and I'm going to give it a four out of five. Oh, all right. 
Well, today's a long live day. We love long live beer works. And I've, there are some times for full disclosure folks that we don't necessarily review the beer live on here. And I'm going to crack this open for the first time. This is another one from Long Live Beer Works, Double Dry Hop, Prison. And I'm going to crack this right here. This is not the crack noise that we normally do. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm not going to pour it in a glass, so I can't tell you what it looks like, but it smells really good. We're working with an, an 8% ABV. Um, it's a double IPA, double dry hopped. With New Zealand hops, we've got some citrus and berry, too. I'm excited. Cheers. Oh, my God. That is berry forward. Have you had this before? I did not. just picked that up along with a few others. Uh, so, have wow. not tried it yet. It's thick. It's really thick, and I taste the berries a ton in the citrus. Wow, this might go down easy, though. Four. This is getting a four for me. Out of five, of course, we, we do the untapped scale for, for the real ones. Four out of five, good score. I mean, we expect this from Long Live at this point. We expect routine four, so And that's the I'm thing. I know it. we've mentioned it in the past, and we'll continue to mention it. Long Live is, you know, producing those beers and they have, you know, great collaboration and they, you know, they use some of the best products in the market, but they're getting up there with Long Trail. I mean, I'm sorry, um, Treehouse and uh, what's the one in Boston? Trillium. Yeah, yeah. Trillium you know, consistently, as we've talked with Ryan about and, and a couple of the other guys, um, Trillium's like consistently ranked top 10 in IPAs in New England now. So, I mean, Longwood's climbing that list. And if they stick around, they will be at the top of that list eventually. And it's, again, they have that exclusivity factor similar to Treehouse where they only make X amount of beers. And, you know, you can only pick up certain, certain quantity amounts of each one. So they don't do mixed pour, four packs that often. Uh, so you have to go to the, to the Providence location to pick up those beers. Yeah. So that's Longwood. I mean, I'm... We're going to be reviewing pretty much every beer Longlift makes at this point. We're getting real close. Um, the, the one exception, though, Prison Mike. We haven't had that. No, no. I was disappointed we couldn't grab that. I hope they bring <sighs> it back soon. Prison Mike, the very elusive beer that we're after every time we go there, is a cherry sour with Michael Scott's face on it. <laughs> I i at a loss. Like there's a part of me that's not complete with, without prison Mike in my life. So I hope they're going to make it. Um, we're approaching that like fall sour season too. So maybe they'll surprise us all. Uh, before we get into the interview with Amy Stedman from beatbox, let's talk about business this week. Uh, we have a really good conversation about what business means to Amy and what it should mean for, for entrepreneurs in this line of work. Um, but first, so we'll just give you the stock of the week pick. Uh, last week was an unprecedented week for Apple, believe it or not. A lot of different things going on that both you and I didn't know about, really. We had to dive into it to find it. But they announced a four-for-one stock split, which basically means, you know, you own one stock at 450, you're getting four of those stocks. Uh, so, you know, they, they'll reduce value, but, you know, you get more shares. 
Um, they had just reported their earnings a while ago, and they had a they had an historically strong quarter. Uh, revenue was able to jump eleven percent. Strong online sales. Um, I mean, we expected this from Apple at this point. Will it's pretty much um, it, you? It's bulletproof. They, they're really bulletproof, and when you have the world falling apart, they need shit like AirPods and iPhones and you know new Macs and and all that stuff because they've got money sitting around and they want to buy it. Uh, pretty much regardless of where you are in the world. Apple is one of those. You know, they are a they're a powerhouse. They are an absolute powerhouse. And I was just looking up the stat because you just mentioned the AirPods. And this was back in the fall of 2019 when they sold 50 to 60 million AirPods and they were projected to sell over a hundred million in 2020. It's probably doubled that because of the pandemic. But, you know, say if they did that hundred million AirPods at the average price of $200, that's $20 billion times a 35% net profit, which is like, Holy shit. 7 billion times 25, uh, you know, price over earnings. And that's $175 billion. If that was a standalone company of $175 billion, you know, using that uh, price over earnings measure, they would be the 32nd largest company in the U.S. And that's just AirPods alone. That's nuts. And Tim Cook just had some kind of new, uh, yeah, I guess he hits billionaire status now. Um, all this shit going on for Apple is incredible. And that's just AirPod sales too. That's that that you just mentioned. That's nuts. Imagine if you factor in iPhone sales and all that stuff. Macs. Yeah. Um, iPads. You know, Apple TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Apple TV with the the their new offers out it's a they're doing actually a lot with apple tv there's a lot of different um big name actors and actresses hopping on apple tv if i'm not mistaken right and i mean you've got the war between spotify and apple podcasts that we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago um well that's the one thing apple is not you know showing a strong showing with their um podcast industry compared to spotify but Right. I think the, even still, I think we should still see some growth uh, with regard to that area of Apple because the investor confidence is clearly there. So I think, you know, Apple's going to get those big name deals eventually, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to get not necessarily a Joe Rogan or something like that, but someone of that caliber, I definitely okay. think that, you know, they're, they have the money to, right. It's a layout for them pretty much. Um, so, I mean, th this is something that you should definitely keep your eyes on as we usually say, um, you look at Apple's charts from the past month, they hit a, a month low of, I think it was 370 and change on Friday, July 24th and closed market on Monday, 450. So I, this is one of those situations where you see the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic start in March uh, and shut everything down, it crashes and we've seen wild growth from them still at all time highs now. So. Apple has proved their recession proof and now it's a matter of how far they're really going to take it. Definitely one we'll have to keep our eyes out. Yeah. So that is it for, for us, for business. Uh, we're going to go into our interview with Amy Stedman. Then after that, we will talk about some college football and then some hockey close out with positivity corner and then uh, say our final goodbyes here. So we, uh, as we mentioned, this is Amy Stedman coming up, Beatbox Beverages, uh, Future Proof, which is the new holding company of 
quite a few different liquor brands that you probably have seen in the liquor stores. So Amy talks with us about plenty of different things, starting a business, being an immigrant from Syria, um, how she's giving her time and money back to the community, and most importantly, how she builds an empire, basically, in the liquor industry without um, being the cookie-cutter kind of drink. Uh, really revolutionized the industry. You can find Beatbox pretty much anywhere that sells liquor. So without further ado, let's dive into our interview with Amy Stedman. All right, everybody, on episode 17 this week, we have none other than Amy Stedman down in Austin, Texas, co-founder of Beatbox Beverages and so much more. Amy, how are you doing down there? I'm doing awesome. How are y'all? Can't complain. Can't complain. We survived this tropical storm and uh, just heading into the weekend, but we're happy to have you yeah. on. And we know what the horrible Texas weather, I guess, is like now. We, we don't understand, quite honestly, the dry heat and stuff just yet. But we know the storms now, so as most of the, the region was without oh, power. Yeah. Did you guys keep your power? I know a lot of people lost their power. For the, for the most part, so we're, we're in more of a, like an apartment building, so we had, we're, we were lucky enough to have some stable, consistent power up here, but we had so many people throughout Rhode Island and Connecticut and all that. Um, yeah. like, I mean, I'm originally from Connecticut, and there's still people without power back there. So. Yeah, that's tough. Well, but now we know what it's like to be a Texan, so. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to August, right? We always get uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So we have Amy on the show, and for the, many of our viewers who went to Bryant University, they knew you from Beatbox Beverages. It was a very popular drink amongst us for many years, and awesome. uh, seeing you on Shark Tank was awesome. But I guess the first question to start it off is, who is Amy Stedman? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a young entrepreneur. You know, we started Beatbox when I was 23 years old. We actually started it right out of college. Um, really just wanted to innovate on boxed wine. This was back in like 2010. So this is the big year where Four Loco broke out and <laughs> you know everybody had just had their you know first party with Four Loco or was was trying to come back from that. And uh, you know, we were just looking at boxed wine and how people were spending so much money on this stuff at every party, every tailgate, floating the river. And, uh, you know, nobody really liked it. And the brands were marketed to like retired people, basically. And so we were like, you know, I think we could probably make a pretty big impact if we innovated on this thing and built something for millennials. But um, backtrack from that, I actually, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My parents were entrepreneurs. Um, growing up, my mom is from Syria. My dad is from the UK. I was actually born in Kuwait right before the Gulf War. Um, so I'm kind of like half Syrian, half uh English and so <clears throat> moved around a lot when I was a little kid just due to like the Gulf War and my dad's job and whatnot so I lived in Syria Kuwait and England before I was 10 years old and wow. moved here to the U.S. and my parents actually quit their jobs um and tried to start their own businesses here in the U.S. and you know were able to do that when I was growing up in middle school and high school they had those like vending machines that had stuffed animals in them and like stickers and uh, candy and stuff. So I spent my high school summers, you know, putting keychains in those little plastic bubbles that you get in those little coin operated <laughs> uh, machines. So definitely grew up with like an entrepreneurial family and helping them with their small business and kind of always having that on my mind. And then, you know, being the first in my generation to go to college as well, my parents really wanted me to go bigger. And so I went to go get my MBA 
and joined Entrepreneurship Society, which is actually where I met my co-founder for Beatbox. So pretty awesome story just leading up to uh, starting the company from that. Now, I believe it was when you were at a young age, I think we had uh, the age of 10 down that you moved from, um, you know, the Middle East to the United States. And yeah. you just mentioned your, your whole background on um, hopping around place to place when you were a kid. Um, do you attribute any of maybe your business successes or your ambitions in life to just that process and, you know, your parents making the leap to, to presumably try to give you a better life? Or, you know, what maybe is your biggest takeaway from that whole thing that, made, uh, that makes you who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I shared my story with an author that's actually compiling a lot of young immigrant entrepreneur stories in a book called Immigrant Hustle that's coming out soon. So hopefully we can share that with everybody. But yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, when you grow up around entrepreneurial parents, you kind of get used to that. You know, if you can see it, you can do it kind of thing. So taking risks and starting my own company, I guess, didn't feel as crazy to me as it might to somebody that didn't grow up around people that were comfortable with those risks and then you know just changing so much definitely like in our industry um, you know the whole point of our company is to disrupt and change our industry and so that's what we do every day and then of course just being in a startup and everything that's going on in the world you just really have to learn to adapt and change things constantly so like when we were in business school, for example, um, you know, one of the biggest books that had come out that we always, you know, talked about among, you know, entrepreneurs and whatnot was Lean Startup. And the idea of, you know, having an idea for something and then testing your hypothesis quickly and cheaply so that you can move forward to the next step and always doing these mini rapid testing experiments. So that's really what we've done. We still do that to this day with packaging, new flavors, um, new marketing ideas. We're constantly getting feedback and testing and, and, and changing and iterating what we're doing. So I think that's been a big key to our success for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you have quite the resume as well. Um, I know you, you talked to us before we began this recording and you know, you've always had that entrepreneurial background, but you were a radio DJ, you ran your own <laughs> online marketing agency, you're, you're assisting startup incubators and you do a lot of, uh, philanthropic work, what was your original career path or what did you have in mind that led you to Beatbox or was it something completely different? Um, you know, I've always been a big like video game nerd. I used to build my own computers growing up to like, you know, play games and stuff. And I, I, mean, I used to make websites when I was like, you know, very young as well. So that, you know, graduating from college in 2008 when the whole recession was happening and no one was hiring anybody, the fact that I knew how to code and do some of that stuff really helped me get an advantage early on in my career. So um, that kind of helped me with the early part of my career find it. But just being entrepreneurial, you know, I went and worked at an agency. I worked in-house at a food bank, a nonprofit, um, doing online marketing. But then, you know, I was always kind of starting websites on nights and weekends, you know, kind of like y'all, <laughs> constantly coming up with new ideas for projects and things like that. So that kind of led to me starting my own, you know, website and online marketing company with my family, which was really why I went to business school in the first place was to try and learn how to be a better entrepreneur and grow that business. I got completely, uh, you know, I don't think there was much of a plan to it other than the fact that I would just love being an entrepreneur and learning and growing. And, uh, you know, my business partners were really excited about the alcohol industry and I was actually really passionate about music. I was radio DJ, like you said, I've always 
been really into just making mixes and, you know, listening to all kinds of different music. And so I was like, well, my job in alcohol will be going to music festivals and helping support artists through, you know, what we're trying to sell. So I'm like, this is pretty much the best career for me. So I've been loving it. <laughs> right. And you get to UTA to, this will be a nice transition into beatbox now. So you do all this stuff in college, right? And yeah, you go back and you get your MBA and then you meet your uh, co-founders co yeah. at Entrepreneur Society. Uh, you know, I, I guess they were fellow MBAs as well. But um, so tell us about that. You must strike up a conversation with them, share some similar interests. Yeah. And then and then what happens? How does Beatbox well, become Beatbox? Yeah, absolutely. So when you know how to make websites and all of your friends are entrepreneurs, you start to become very popular. So everybody's <laughs> like, hey, can you help me out? You know, I've got this idea for a company. I'd love to make a website for it, whatever. So I think that was really one of the first things that I talked to Justin about. I was like, yeah, I'd love to help you with your idea and make a website. And then we started working together and got along super well. You know, we're both very friendly and chill and love music, but we still have like a really good work ethic. And you know, a desire to make this a real thing. So, um, you know, we just started working together as a class project. You know, we had our business plan competition class that we did it with and, you know, our marketing class that we did it with. And, and slowly, slowly we, we, you know, made these prototypes where we emptied out Franzia boxes and bags and filled them with, you know, every kind of mixer and vodka that we could come up with. And the original beatbox was as actually the raspberry lemonade crystal light mixed with vodka that we uh, <laughs> would just make. And, you know, we'd fill them in these bags and take them to the pool. And it was, you know, people would try and hand us $20 bills to buy a, a big blue bag of beatbox. <laughs> so, but we, we were like, okay, this might actually be a real thing. And when it came time to graduate, you know, we all got job offers and, and other opportunities. And, you know, there was a few of us that really decided to say, hey, um, this is, you know, what we really want to go for. And, and for me, you know, I didn't have kids at the time. I was like, you know, this could be really a time to do something entrepreneurial and go big with it before, you know, I kind of want to slow down and, and have a family or whatever. So, um, yeah, we just, you know, I kind of, it was really hard because I had to break up with my boyfriend and say no to a job offer <laughs> and to, to go full time with Beatbox. But, you know, I'm so glad that those things happened because it's just been, such a roller coaster since then. Um, so I actually had to work a day job at UT Austin. I worked for the entrepreneurship department and they had like this kind of job where after you graduate, if you're not independently wealthy, which I'm not, um, <laughs> you know, you, you could work for them and they'd give you health insurance and a steady salary, but they knew you were working on your startup. So they were really supportive and, you know, they'd let us take meetings and whatnot. And so over the course of that year, we actually started Beatbox, we launched it here in Austin. We used to make it ourselves in like a very small facility that we had rented. Um, so like I'd go to my day job at UT and help them with their website and whatever. And then after work, I'd drive to our really small, cheap facility and we'd be there like literally hand gluing boxes together with a glue gun. And I would spend like eight hours gluing boxes together, go home at like 1 a.m. And then on the weekend, when we actually had the finished product created, we would take it to stores and I would just stand there for, you know, the first two years of the company, I probably did like at least one to two to three tastings. So that's like three to nine hours a weekend of standing in stores being like, hey, would you like to try Beatbox? It's happy hour, come check it out. <laughs> yep. and, uh, and just handing people samples, which was awesome because again, that rapid feedback 
we got to be able to, you know, get hundreds of people's opinions really quickly on the flavor, the packaging, the price point, you know, the calories, like all this kind of stuff. So really early in the company, we were getting that awesome feedback and able to make some sort of tweaks and planning for the next level. And so still working a day job, still doing all this stuff. You know, honestly, it's probably one of the hardest years of my life because I was working like constantly. Um, and then we got a really lucky break where, uh, we were presenting on behalf of the entrepreneurship department. I was kind of doing my professor a favor, actually. I was like trying to help him like present in front of a bunch of his donors to say, hey, we help students, we help them start companies. Like this is all the cool classes and stuff we have for them. And so we were up there just saying, hey, we started Beatbox. These are all the business playing competitions we did. These are all the classes we took, blah, blah, blah. And one of the guys in the audience was actually the owner of one of the biggest wine and spirits distributors in the whole country. His name's Alan Dream, and he owns Republic National Distribution Company with his partners. And so he kind of came up to us after that and was like, hey, I think I can give you guys, you know, I could probably help you guys with your business. And we were like, oh, who are you? And then comes to find out he's like one of the most important people in the industry. So he like took us under his wing, um, signed RNDC Texas up to start distributing us which helped us be able to outsource manufacturing now. We don't have to make it ourselves anymore because we have like a steady customer that we can, you know, legally distribute through. And, um, and then they introduced us to HEB, which is like one of the biggest private retail grocery chains in the country, but it's really important here in central Texas. It's where, where they started. Um, and so they presented us to HEB and HEB being such an awesome company and supporting, you know, local startups pretty frequently. Um, they took us on and we were able to get like a big summer display program and like a huge chain like HEB before I even went full-time with the company, which is like amazing. Um, and so leading up to that, um, we have this big festival in Austin every year called South by Southwest. In oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Obviously it got canceled this year, but um, typically, you know, every year we have really important startup people and musicians and all kinds of actors and all kinds of people in town. So it's a great place to like launch a company. Even Twitter launched at South by Southwest in 2007. Right. So we launched Beatbox in uh, 2013, you know, there. And then in 2014 at South by Shark Tank actually had auditions. And so that's when we applied to be on Shark Tank. And then as you guys know, we got on the show that summer. So I finally got to quit my day job when we got the uh, million dollars from Mark Cuban. So I mean, it was quite a, a journey from just starting it to actually being able to be full-time at it. And then, you know, since then, we've almost gone out of business three times. And, like, yep. you know, there's been, like, a million adventures since then, too. So, like, um, you know, it, next year will be 10 years uh, of us working on it. Only, we've only been in the market since, like, 2013 and, and not really anywhere other than a few states until just recently. But, um, yeah, we're just... You know, every step of the journey has felt like a, a whole different lifetime kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You definitely have a business story that will one day be a case study for many colleges. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I actually have written a case study. Oh, really? Yeah, Just shame on us. Shame on us, yeah. <laughs> yeah you guys should, um, I don't think it's published yet, but there is one in development. So I appreciate you saying that. You know, I, I hope that it ends up being like a, a really big global brand. That'd be amazing. That's our dream. And, you know, hopefully we'll get there one day. We're kind of like checking in in different points along the way, you know? 
Exactly. And we love the product. A lot of our friends yeah. <laughs> do. But for someone who is listening to the show who might not know what Beatsbox is, can you explain what the beverage is? Absolutely. So Beatbox is the world's tastiest portable party punch. Uh, basically, it's a wine-based party punch that's in Tetra Pak or Bag and Box packaging. So we have a big five-liter Bag and Box that's a slap the bag on it. Um, great for parties, pools, floating in the river. And then we have Tetra Packs, which are 500 milliliters, so more like a single serving. And we have five flavors, six coming soon. And people love to mix and match flavors and, and bring them to parties and things like that. They are 11.1% ABV. So they pack a punch as a, no fun. <laughs> you know, they're, they're an alternative for making your own cocktails and punch and things like that for parties, right? So they're, they're much more in that higher ABV phase as opposed to like a seltzer or something that's more at like that four or 5% ABV. So we consider ourselves a party punch. Uh, even though we're still low calorie and low sugar, um, you know, we've always been kind of low calorie, low sugar, eco-friendly, um, great product. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we're not coming out and saying we like condone underage drinking or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> um, we, when I tried this for the first time, mm -hmm. I, I thought there was no way that it was 11%. I, I thought it tasted like a, a fun Gatorade yeah. kind of deal. And to yeah. find out that it was, no sugar, um, or no, you know, added okay. sugar, I think was yeah. the, right. Exactly. And all that stuff just with all the, the flavor and the, the pack of punch, I guess, if you will, it yeah. was nothing short of remarkable. I, I really yeah. thought that you guys were one of really a kind in the industry at that point. Yeah. And, and we still kind of are, which is so interesting because, you know, even as we've had so much success, we haven't seen too many people really come out and try and compete with us directly, which is you know, maybe we'll come one day, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's really what I was looking for when I was 23 was something that tasted great. You know, I wasn't, you know, I still don't drink scotch or whiskey or like, you know, like I don't really drink that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, as we've seen, the whole millennial generation isn't drinking traditional beer and wine. That's where the whole seltzer boom, all of this stuff comes from flavors, right? So I think that's what we recognize we wanted and, and acted on quickly. And now the industry is slowly realizing that that's what this whole generation wanted and, and is reflecting that as well. And it's funny that you mentioned that too, because we, you know, our, our show's called Beers, Business and Balls, obviously. And we have gotten into home brewing of late and, you know, we're 23 years old now and we, it, seltzer is the go-to. It, it's the, the flavored stuff that's the go-to. We have a seltzer brewing right now, like our own little craft seltzer. And I think it's, really cool to see the people that were first to this industry, you know, lining up at the door in 2013, 14 and saying, watch out because things like the orange wine, things like the seltzers are going to get big in the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And now we even have our own seltzer with Brizzy's uh, seltzer cocktails. Right. And then we also have a canned wine cork list. So we're just kind of continuing to see where we can innovate in the industry and you know, I'm a, I'm a young entrepreneur. I want to have a long career in this industry and, and be the change that I want to see in this industry. So I'm excited about what other innovations we can do in the future too. And we'll touch upon that in a moment. So let's head, head, uh, head back in time when you head on Shark Tank. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, you had the opportunity to audition um, and you land the deal with Mr. Mark Cuban, which is, I mean, he's one of our favorite personalities on the show as well. I guess starting off like did you expect that deal to happen and you know kind of explain like the process of i guess the interviewing with shark tank and then of course the deal coming to fruition 
Yeah, so, you know, I definitely did not expect the deal. We we actually were pretty scared. We, you know, it's Shark Tank. You expect them to get <laughs> right? So we had all of our toughest business school professors, like, grilling us. And I had all these flashcards of, like, things that I thought they were going to ask us and whatnot. But, um, I mean, y'all saw, saw our episode. We we filmed for about an hour, and then wow. we edited it back to, like, eight minutes. So the stuff that isn't on the show, they asked us a lot more specific questions about our sales and stores, about our families, our backgrounds, things like that. But the actual negotiation of the deal um, is very similar to, you know, pretty much the same as what you guys see on the show. It did happen kind of quickly like that. Um, so yeah, we were able to get one of the best deals on the show of all time. It was very surreal to me then. It's still pretty surreal to me now. Um, we got you know, we, we closed the deal the same way that it was on the show. The only thing that was different was, you know, we structured part of it as debt to begin with just for alcohol compliance reasons. And then, um, it converted to equity, but it was pretty much, you know, I know a lot of people have that question too. Like, did your deal actually close the same way on from the show, you know? So yeah, we had probably one of the best experiences with Shark Tank that I've ever heard of from an entrepreneur startup you know, standpoint, you know, Mark has been awesome and has helped us, you know, a lot throughout the years. And his brother, Jeff is on our board now. And I work with him. You know, I, I was literally on a call with him right before uh, I got on with you guys. So yeah, he's super active in the business still and, and helping us wherever they can. So uh, super great experience. Of course, no one can plan to go on Shark Tank, right? Like, it's, it's, it's a lucky break for sure. But, you know, our strategy was, it's a TV show. Let's give them good TV. Let's bring the energy, you know, the neon colors, the, <laughs> you know, the, the passion and the drive, which we already have for our business and, and put it forward. And, and I'm just so glad that it worked out because it really helped us get a, a really good lucky head start on the business. A, a moment that stuck out for us when we rewatched this episode on Hulu a couple of, day, a couple of days ago is when you guys are handing out the samples Mm -hmm. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary takes it and goes, this tastes like then an expletive after. Or <laughs> you guys just, yeah. if that were me, I would be like, oh my God, he just totally ruined my shot getting invested. Did that yeah. deter you guys at all? Were you shook after that? Or <laughs> I'm curious to see what Mr. Wonderful's interrogation does to people up there. Oh, of course I was like, I want everyone to like it. But at the same time, we kind of knew the whole point of our company wouldn't exist if if the traditional drinkers, you know, loved it, right? Like there's already solutions for people like Kevin. He has his- He's a wine snob, exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we knew we weren't creating solutions for Kevin, so we didn't really mind if he didn't like it. it. The most important thing is that he could see that a lot of people would like it and that it was a good business opportunity, which, you know, they all ended up making offers. So obviously he didn't see it that way. My One of my friends actually made a meme after that happened of like, this tastes like shit. I'll give you $200,000 for it. <laughs> <laughs> what, like his offer was. So anyway, I thought that was funny. And then another thing too, is you guys went in there and asked for 200 grand for, um, I believe it was 10% stake. So they technically, I guess the deal that you guys struck with Mark, obviously valued you a little bit higher than that. So yeah. <laughs> was that a little bit of a shock to you or was that kind of the end game coming in? Maybe a little low ball or tell us about that an early stage CPG company period it's really hard to set a valuation normal fundraising you don't right you just do a convertible you kind of wait for you to grow a little bit and see what you're going to be 
Um, but they wanted us to kind of land on a, a priced round or whatever. That's the way that we were going with the structure. So we wanted something that was fair, but not, um, you know, not, not a bad deal for us and not a bad deal for the investor. So that's why we ran in there around 2 million. We had done about $250,000 worth of sales. And so we're like, okay, like somewhat, you know, if we could multiply that by 12 months, then it kind right. of lends itself to this valuation. It's kind of a loose valuation, I guess, you know? Yeah. So when Mark wanted to take a third of the company, which we didn't want to give up a third of the company, um, to us, we saw that as him wanting to get engaged with us and get really excited and involved. And so we didn't want to, you know, tell him to go back down on terms of percent of equity because we wanted his buy-in. We wanted him to benefit a lot when we, when we grow. And so, um, we just, you know, Justin, my business partner, I give him a lot of credit for being a great negotiator, but he just kind of said, hey, would you do it for a million? Knowing that to Mark, you know, 400 grand is not the same to him as it is to you and I, right? I think, you know, relative to our net worth, it's like $10 to me. So, you know, he just kind of said, hey, you know, would you increase your investment amount for that percentage of the company that you want so that it's a great deal for everybody involved and and as you saw on the show mark quickly agreed so that was the strategy there and um so glad it worked out yeah and that's my one question on that because obviously you experienced it firsthand and we know from being fans of the show that there is a lot of editing like you mentioned was that as spontaneous as it was or did you have a moment to sit back and think and talk about it you know, we we talked about, okay, yeah, we can use our little moment to talk to each other. But, you know, on these shows, we, we to prepare for the show, we literally watched every single episode of Shark Tank. Right. We took notes, you know, we wrote down all the questions we thought they might ask, stuff like that. So we kind of knew that that cadence of somebody making an offer and then the entrepreneurs being kind of wishy-washy about it. So we knew that we wanted Mark. And so when he threw out an offer, you know, we wanted to just kind of just seal the deal and not lose that momentum so that's that's why i think yeah it did happen that quickly on the show it was like i said very surreal for me but uh yeah i'm just so glad it worked out again very grateful i feel like cuban checks all the boxes too because he's a texas guy um you know he's got he, he's always i feel like ahead of the wave on that next new thing in every industry too you know rather than the other judges on the show that i, I don't want to say are different from that but they're more they tend to trust what has worked for them over their career, I think. So I, I'm, I'm very, uh, it, it, bottom line is it makes sense that you guys wanted Mark Cuban to invest, I think. So yeah, yeah he, he got it right away. You know, he said, you guys don't sell wine, you sell fun. And they understood that we were a lifestyle brand, that we wanted this to be bigger than just one product, that we wanted it to be a whole platform. And uh, yeah, that's, that's that kind of big vision that we wanted an investor. So yeah, definitely. And you talk about a surreal moment. Well, it's now 2020 and Beatbox has fully evolved. So we now have Future Proof, which oversees not only Beatbox and you mentioned uh, Drizzly Cocktails and Corpus Wine. So tell us like the evolution process of the company from Shark Tank to now and also explain the other products that you have. Yeah, so Beatbox is loved by consumers because it tastes great, the high ABV, the fun branding, the packaging, all that stuff but it's actually got quite a few B2B hacks to it as well that make it especially great product for distributors and retailers. So you guys know from the industry, people are drinking less beer than ever before. So most of these beer wholesalers are, you know, we're probably the first wine-based product they've ever sold. 
they, you know, all of the sales that they get from our brand is incremental to everything else they're selling in their portfolio. It's not like they're taking us on and having to put away another brand's IPA or something because they're taking on our IPA, right? So they, they really love the fact that party, you know, our beatbox party punch was an awesome solution for them to gain more dollars, um, you know, than they were before and, and gain some more occasions that they weren't really grabbing from before. And so they came to us and said, hey, what other wine-based products or other kinds of solutions can you guys bring to us that work for us like this? And so that's kind of where Corkless and Brizzy came from was how can we leverage an awesome, you know, eco-friendly canned wine brand, Corkless, through the beer networks and the beer wholesalers go after that convenience store channel, the grocery channel, and kind of execute in the way that we do with Party Punch, but with a, a traditional wine type product. And then um, also on Brizzy, you know, we're going after those cocktail, those spirits occasions for that brand. And so again, it's, it's not really competing with the beer type occasions as much as it would be with like cocktails, right? So for the beer wholesaler, again, it's just that incrementality. So that is really the thesis behind those. Those are really like, you know, from the consumer perspective, of course, we want to have great products that taste great, look great. You know, you guys have seen the packaging on the new stuff. Hopefully you think it looks as great as we do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a big part of that too is being that B2B solution because it doesn't matter, you know, how great your product is in this business. We have the three tier law. So if retailers and wholesalers aren't getting behind it, it really doesn't matter. Right. You'll, never, you'll never find it on shelves, which is, you know, really what we experience from our cult fandom of beatbox is like everybody in the country wants to get it, but it's just hard to actually get it on the shelf sometimes. You really have to sell it all the way through. So that's what it's all about. Quick side comment on that too. The, the first, you know, back in 2016, 2017, there was a liquor store right near our, our campus and they would put it behind the shelf for some reason because it was just going like crazy and they didn't want to put it out because <laughs> they didn't want to be the, the people known as like, oh my God, they have beatbox. It was, and a, it was a hawk mod. Yeah. Was, they were like, they're going to be pissed off if they come here, there's no beatbox. So they yeah. or, you yeah. had to ask for it. I mean, it, we just launched e-commerce like a couple of weeks ago. We already sold out of cases. I mean, we have <laughs> stories. We were... This month, we've gotten a thousand visits to our store locator a day. Oh my God. So like 30,000 people searching for beatbox in their area. So, I mean, that's what we're laser focused on is just trying to scale. I think we've really, you know, fine tuned the product, fine tuned our, our distribution model, the marketing, everything. And now it's all about, you know, just as a small alcohol company getting out there, trying to get on more, more store shelves and, and selling the good news to people because. It, you know, we're, we're actually got our Nielsen IRI data recently. And like, as compared to like other wine touches, we have all five of the top 10 SKUs, like the top five are ours in terms of, you know, dollars generated per point of distribution in the store. So if you compare our brand versus Boda Box or, you know, Barefoot Wine or any of these other companies, we on average make retailers a lot more money than those other companies. And then, you know, you can even compare us to flavored malt beverages, like, you know, like White Claw and like these other, you know, brands. And we actually end up being the top 20 as well. So oh. we're just trying to go out and say, all right, when we're in the store, this is how much we sell. Please just put us in your stores. <laughs> That's our mission right now. And so we're, we're really trying to just, 
you know, every year we try and, you know, raise more money, hire more people, um, and continue the expansion and the growth. So that, that's what we're doing again, you know, this year, obviously with coronavirus, it's very difficult, but we'll be doing more fundraising and, and growing again later this year and next year as well. So. Yeah. So let's put the, so th this has been great insight into your brand and, and your journey to launch this brand as well. Let's talk about you now. Let's put the brand aside. Um, you, aside from your entrepreneurial endeavors, have really taken a focus, it seems, through your entire life into the, the social impact, uh, social entrepreneurship ventures, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, sustainability-focused groups in general as well. That's yeah. interesting to us for sure. So we want to hear about, you know, why, why that area? Uh, phil philanthropic endeavors are certainly on the come up for entrepreneurs, absolutely. Um, but why is that an area that you wanted to focus your, your money and your time and your efforts into? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been very passionate about climate change, even as a teenager. I just think, you know, for spiritual and practical reasons, we need to figure out how to live in harmony with everything else on this planet. Um, and so for me, it's always been kind of bigger than my job for me is like, okay, like, as an adult in my 30s and 40s, I have pale skin, I know Mark Cuban, I'm fully resourced, like I have every privilege, you know, I'm, my parents moved from the Middle East, you know, one of the shittiest countries, not, you know, like it's shittiest yeah. situation for an entrepreneur anyway, um, to be here. So I just feel like I have so much opportunity and resource that um, I, you know, this is my job is to do what I can to move the ball forward to make our global economy more sustainable we call it regenerative now because we've got so much uh so much work to do to regenerate the planet as well as keep it sustainable but um and then also inclusive as we know there's so much we need to do on the racial justice front in this country but also just globally so um you know to me like just spiritually speaking that's more important than making money it's it's almost not as motivating to me to just get rich because it's like okay great people get rich all the time like right. what can we actually do to make this planet and this whole world better for people that live in it. So um, I've gotten really behind the B Corp model. So B Corp, it's kind of like a certification, almost like organic for business models. Um, so, you know, you have to be following certain labeled practices and, and have certain environmental practices to get that certification. And so I've kind of drawn a line in the sand where I don't really want to be advising, investing, or you know, operating any business that doesn't have something like that going on, just because that's where my heart is. Um, and and honestly, I think I hope it'll become a trend in consumer brands where you know consumers expect that from their beer and their their beverages and their food and everything because it's kind of shady not to be a B Corp. Like, why wouldn't you be? You know, this thing. Um, don't you want to protect you know people and the environment? So that's that's kind of what i'm doing is like all right i'm gonna start in my own backyard of of beverage and and you know future proof we're doing a lot eco-friendly and and inclusive things anti-racist trainings and whatnot um and then we started a group here myself and a few other entrepreneurs got together and started a chapter of a nonprofit called the naturally network so it's naturally austin there's also naturally boulder chicago um some chapters in california and whatnot so and that is just all CPG founders, so food, beverage, uh, wellness, soap, like all, anything you find in a grocery store, professionals and founders that want to make the world more sustainable and a better place. And so I, my role on the board is to help support everybody with 
education. So bringing in sustainability consultants and people like Climate Collaborative and B Corp to kind of talk to the other founders and professionals to think about how they can kind of embed this stuff into their business model. Because I just feel like that's what we're going to need to do. You know, if I'm if I'm going to have kids and y'all are going to have kids, like those kids are going to need somewhere to hang out. And so, uh, you know, we we just need to be able. You know, I've been a little disheartened with all the the political movement around climate change. It hasn't really been treating it as an emergency. So um, doing it through the business community has been a really great way for me to have impact and, and just kind of live that part of my heart out. And it's cool that it's woven through your brand too. And not a, a ton of, I don't want to say not a ton, a ton of companies put that at the forefront, but you look at a company like New Belgium, for example, that, that, that process works. The model works, right? They've been around since the late 80s, early 90s, and they have founded it on sustainability, and now they're one of the more popular beer brands. So, I mean, it's... Another B Corp, which is right, awesome. exactly. It's a B Corp. So, that, it's not like you're breaking barriers in that end. You're doing something that you know works and is a wise business decision, and it also means a lot to you. So, I think that's where a lot of people um, necess don't necessarily get on the boat there, you know? Yeah, and I think it's a really cool idea, you know, as an entrepreneur to be like, hey, you know, they did it in craft beer let's show the world how to do a b corp and, and cocktails or, or somewhere in that nature and then you know maybe i can help other companies through naturally austin prove it out in, in other things like food and beverage and other areas so that we have a lot of examples like new belgium out there in 10 years you know that's awesome yeah i mean your story is incredible and your journey has been amazing before we let you go what has been the biggest takeaway or lesson that you can provide to other entrepreneurs that are in the same boat as you you know from starting from college or starting from a different background having an idea and a group of friends and then making it come into fruition what is one thing that you could say to them yeah i think for me i would just say community is your superpower as an entrepreneur and so, you know, just like listening to this podcast and getting involved online and in the industry and meeting other people that are excited about this industry, I think that's really how you get things going. People, you know, have business ideas or startup ideas and they think they're, you know, let me just keep this secret forever and never talk to anyone about it. And, uh, you know, Beatbox would not be where it is today if we didn't talk to everybody we knew about it and ask them a million questions and, you know, keep asking questions. You know, 10 years later, we're still trying to learn the industry and have that sort of, you know, curiosity and, and entrepreneur mindset about it. So, you know, if you really believe in something, you're really excited about it, just find the best people you can and, and bring them around you and, and grow through the process and, and just go for it. Because, um, you know, if, if I knew everything I knew when we started, I probably wouldn't have done it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> take that leap of faith and see what happens, you know. Well, this has been great. Amy Stedman, folks, from Future Proof Brands, founder of Beatbox, among many other accolades. Amy, to close out, where can our listeners find you on maybe social media or engage with you or engage with your product? Uh, any plug that you want to put in for your brand or anything you're working on can come here. Yeah, absolutely. You can check out all our brands at futureprf.com. Uh, beatboxbeverages.com is a great spot to check out Beatbox and everything we've got going on there. We've been hosting, you know, before COVID, we did a lot of music festivals and we've been hosting a lot of digital music festivals now that we're all at home. So, you know, hopefully you can join us on there and, and dance in your living room with us sometime with a nice cold beatbox. So. Perfect. Amy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll see you down there and uh, we'll talk to you soon. So thank you.
was just Amy Stedman of Beatbox Beverages and um, Future Proof. I think one of the best interviews we've had thus far, you know, great story. And that was an awesome one to have on the show. I mean, we've been a fan of her products for, you know, since we were sophomores in college. So really <laughs> great to hear her story and uh, listen to what, what she had to say in her entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I mean, it was long before we were legally able to have Beatbox that we were drinking it, right? So I mean, like... Off the record, folks. Off the record. Well, now it's on the record, but um, yeah, I mean, she, she's just phenomenal. I think we were talking about our top five guests that we've had on over these 17 episodes, and I, I think she's on that list. She, she is on the, the front half of that list. So Amy's dope. Uh, you know, I really, uh, really like that conversation, and hopefully we hear more from her soon. Uh, let's close with the balls portion. Of course, we're talking all things sports and entertainment. Uh, college football, folks. Everyone is so eager to gamble again that that's, I think, what the most that, – that is where the outcry is coming from over this pandemic. There is growing concern as of, you know, the past couple of days that the college football season will not happen. Today, we got a report that the Big Ten is expected to cancel its games now. They're not confirmed, but that's what the growing sentiment is. And then you've got the players speaking out. You've got Trevor Lawrence, who's always been pretty vocal. Uh, Of course, Trevor Lawrence, a Clemson quarterback. He is pushing a play now. Now there's theories out that the players might unionize um, over growing concerns about, you know, their own personal health and safety. Um, And what Trevor Lawrence argued something really, really interesting. He says that players are safer and healthier playing at school and being with their team than they are at home. You know, they're out in the street. They, you know, you got to think uh, a good portion of people uh, on Division One football scholarships, maybe not in the most fortunate of situations at home, maybe not the right amenities or the environment um, that they had been longing for. And the school will provide them an outlet. They get tested. They get medical assistance. Now it's just, it's up. It's out in the open. So no one knows if the college football season is going to happen. But I, I think, Will, that Trevor Lawrence and a lot of these players are raising some valid points. Well, it's crazy to see guys like Trevor Lawrence, who he would not have to play, COVID or not, would not have to play a snap this season. And he would yeah. be a top three pick making millions of dollars and he is the one being the one of the biggest advocates there's a lot to digest from this i mean you make a good point about how you know they should be playing because they have it's a safer and healthier option than they if they were home i mean that's just a fact because they college football is you know some of these big programs whether it's the sec or the big 10 those locker rooms and facilities are like five-star resorts And if they're going to get the weekly testing and they already are protected on campus, you know, and you're seeing other professional sports leagues are playing, they should be able to play as well. But it comes to the end of the day that whoever has the money talks and money talks in general. Money Um, talks and bullshit walks. Exactly. You saw, you saw the Mac cancel their season. And, you know, the Mac already does a great thing of, you know, it's not one of the biggest college programs by all means, but, you know, they don't play on traditional schedules. You know, they can have like a Wednesday night game. And it's action, man. Exactly. And if you're going to have these schools that are, you know, 
not only because of the health concerns and everything, but you have some programs who want to play. Uh, for example, John Harbaugh in Michigan, you know, really wants to play, even though he'll probably get his shit kicked in by Ohio State. <laughs> but it's going to be interesting to see if, like, our team's going to go rogue and leave their conference. So, you know, if if the Big Ten says they're not playing, but, you know, Michigan does, like, can they leave their conference and go play in the SEC for a semester and then come back? Well, it's like what I told you earlier. When you look at the BYU schedule, all their opponents are gone because they were playing a lot of teams in Mount West Conference, and uh, the MWC just came out and said, you know, they're one of the schools that's going to cancel football. They're down to three opponents. They are down to three people on the schedule now, or three programs, I should say. Um, <laughs> you can't play Utah every week, so what are you going to do? You know? Um, I don't know. There's I don't know. The this conversation is... of them wanting to play in the spring, too. But there's so many typical nightmares. But if they, even if they did, then you have the NFL draft, and then you're going to go right back into the fall. Right, right. Like, Obviously, how awesome would it be to have like eight straight months of college football from a fan, from a gambling perspective, from a sports perspective, it would be awesome. But you'd have to fight with broadcasting schedules, the health and safety of these players. Not even Yeah, I'm more worried about that than the yeah, longevity of them, over. too, because you go and you work out and you play football. Football, yeah. you might be able to pull that off with basketball or baseball, but sports like football and hockey, you can't just go out and play two seasons in a row, you know? Well, if you they're, have they're a guy that tears, yeah, if you have a guy that tears his ACL week one of the spring, he's done for that entire year. You lose two full seasons. It, yeah, that's two seasons. That's nuts. And I don't even think it's the it, – there was a good argument on Twitter I saw today that the spring is just not going to happen. It can't happen at all. So it has to be fall or bust. And unfortunately, I think it's leading towards bust. You know, we're, we're still waiting on a lot of the other conferences to say what the hell they're even doing for fall sports in general. And what you've seen already in college is these schools are taking an all or nothing approach. They're saying, all right, we're going to play all sports and this is our plan or we're not going to play any sports. So I really – I understand that that's what they have to do, but, I mean, it sucks when you have a powerhouse football program. Like, let's take, for example, Clemson and just run them through it, right? Clemson is very good at football. They're not good at a lot of other things, but you have, like, a, a great soccer team and things like that. So what are you going to do? And if you go and tell a school like Clemson, like, you can only play football – but your nationally ranked soccer team can't play like your other sports can't play. That's not going to bode over well for people, no. right? It's not going to bode well for them. So I don't know. This is going to get real sticky when they start talking about college football in the next couple of weeks. Well, I mean, uh, not start, good. but <laughs> I hope it's not a start of a conversation here. But I mean, it's, it can't be, it has to be a conversation in the next couple of days, yeah. if not day. I mean, I know today they were supposed to vote, I think it was the Big Ten or the Pac-12 conferences were supposed to vote to see if they're going to play or not. And you have the president tweeting about it. And then you have all the political uprise because of that. And I mean, in most Southern schools, like universities start next week, if not already. I mean, those guys are probably on campus trying to get ready. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they're working out and, and all that stuff, right? Uh, to some level, they have to be. They had to be in the gym or at the very least, or, you know, the basketball guys are getting up shots obviously right now, but 
Uh, I mean, it, it's, this doesn't look good. My, my meter right now in the spirit of John boy on Twitter, uh, my, my meter of if college football going to happen right now is, is it's a no, it's a flat out. No. So that could change in 12 hours. I, I really don't know, but. I don't know. This weekend when the news started coming out, you know, I was at probably a 10% chance that football, oh, wow, that low, huh? you know, college football was going to happen. And then, you know, briefly catching up on it today and just the different conversations that took place. I'm actually going to go higher. I think it was going to be like a 35, 40% chance that it happens wow. in some way, shape or form. Well, I, I think I'm at 10 right now. That's a good way to put it. I'm at that 10. Because like, I, I mean, all normality and, you know, creatures of habit are just thrown out the window with yeah. growing up. But there, I think there will be college football in some way, shape or form. It's a bold allegation. So we're, we're going to know probably by next week, I would hope anyway. So that'll be a lot to digest for next week's episode. Um, we transition now to hockey. The Rangers get the the New York Rangers, that is, get the number one overall pick in the NHL draft. And it was quite honestly nearly <laughs> against all odds. I don't know how they did it as you're shaking your head. Um, <laughs> the Islanders' blood is burning inside your body. Um, they are calling it, and when I say they, I mean not only Chris Handel, our resident hockey blogger, but Hockey fans across the nation are calling it the Lafreniere sweepstakes. And basically they are calling the number one overall pick or the kid that they assume will get the number one overall pick. Uh, his name is Alexis Lafreniere. 18 year old phenom that they call the next Sidney Crosby. And if that is the case, if he pans out to be anything good, then the Rangers might have a couple of really good years to come with some really good signings over the past one or two years and some nearly impossible draft luck over these two years too. I don't know. I, I think this is very good for the Rangers for sure, but they can't fuck this up. I mean, it, it, yeah, like you said, it was the Lafreniere, the Lafreniere sweepstakes and he's this highly touted prospect. I mean, it's just crazy because they literally had a 12 and a half print. 12.5% chance of getting that pick. And then Twitter's obviously blowing up because, like, you know, the ball seemed heavier or yeah. lighter. Oh, I love these and conspiracy theories now. It's like, oh, the yeah. ball was heavier. It was and different. It was off-white or cream. One thing that is funny, though, is, like, the Leafs got fucked from that. Yeah, they did. Because weren't they supposed to be pretty high in that, in that lottery? Well, you saw the ball, like – it actually like double blinked like oh, the right. yes. Yes. ball was like in the shoot and then like bounced uh -huh. out and then the Rangers one slid in. <sighs> the Rangers have a good team. I mean, like you mentioned, Chris is obviously ecstatic, but he keeps his bias out of it when writing our blogs. Um, but the Rangers, have that's a, called capital J journalism for sure. Yeah. The Rangers <laughs> do have, you know, the potential and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> My focus right now is just the Islanders play the Capitals. And if they can win this COVID Cup, this COVID Stanley Cup, then I'd be happy. I'll, you know what? I'll take the one championship over the future right now. One big thing that I just thought of while you said what you were saying, why the fuck are we determining a team's odds or team's draft pick with a lottery ball? 
This and the NBA, I I despise it. I absolutely despise it. Worst record. I mean, I get it because you can't like, you can't tank with this. Like you can, but like you still have to like get the percentage. But you got like, there's got to be some way, shape, or form that it's not like a hundred percent honest. It's just one of those things where it's like, okay, like yeah, they televise it and shit. But like, but we don't fucking know what's in there. Like last, we don't know what's in there. Here, when the Pelicans, you know, the Pelicans were gonna lose AD, and yeah. AD is obviously one of the top players in the league, and that a whole drama of how like he only wanted to be traded to the Lakers, and the Lakers were gonna give up House, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have Zion being the number one pick. Like no matter which team got the pick, he was gonna be the number one because he's the new face of the league. Um you know, all of a sudden the Pelicans get it. And they weren't even like, they were in the lottery, but they were like one of the lower percentages. It's like, come on. Like, how do you been screwing over the Knicks for years? So (laughs) that too. And that was the same Um, with like when the Cavs got it like a couple years ago. And like, that was just like, yeah, what the fuck? You know, that was LeBron Cavs too, right? No, it was, well, LeBron signed the year that they got Wiggins with the first overall. Yeah, yeah. And he was just part of the trade collateral to get, Kevin Love, which brought him the title. I don't know, man. Like, why are we doing this? Why why do we still do this? There's got to be competitive balancing since the leagues have discussed. And I actually know there has. How does baseball get it? Well, baseball is – it's purely a record. And then um, you get additional picks in the – you know, the rounds in between, like, the first and second. If you have a free agent, like, over a certain performance – um, that you extend a qualifying offer to and they decline it, you get a, one of those picks in there. So they're usually about, you know, between six to 10 of those picks uh, in between the first and second round, at least. And then they dwindle off. But the MLB draft is fucked because they just went from like 60 rounds to five. So that's for another day. But yeah. we, we've talked about that a little bit too. Um, that's really it for balls. I mean, we, we did – actually, we did leave something big off here. Uh, the Astro Shame Tour is in full swing. We talked last week – I think we talked about this, about Joe Kelly uh, throwing behind Carlos Correa. I'm not even sure anymore. I, I don't think we talked about it now that I'm thinking about it. Um, Dodgers pitcher Joe Kelly throws behind Carlos Correa last week. Um, much to his chagrin, I guess you could say, he was very embarrassed uh, when Joe Kelly said, nice swing, bitch, and then the bench is cleared. We've got another one, folks. Another Astros shaming thing happens. Uh, Ramon Laureano, who is one of the better prospects on the Oakland A's, you know, he's getting much more playing time now. He's a full starter, pretty much. And Laureano, I, I don't even know what the situation was, but he hears something going on from the Astros dugout, and it turns out it's bench coach Alex Centrone who has played everywhere. That, that's a name you should recognize if you grew up playing MLB video games from 2K and all this stuff. You play with the White Sox and all that shit. He's the bench coach of the Astros now, and he allegedly said something about Ramon Laureano's mother, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, and it was in Spanish. Ramon Laureano came here and spoke not a lick of English, so he – Heard Centron say it in Spanish. I think it was, he, they, and they still don't uh, or have not released what he said because he's denying it all. Says something about his mother, and Loriano turns around and goes, "What the fuck did you just say?" Pretty much, and 
Citron starts walking out of the dugout like he's going to fight him. So Loriano, in great shape, he's like 23 years old, goes, all right, bitch, like, I'm going to fuck you up. And then he sprints over to him. He's got guys holding him back. He runs right into the dugout, and he tries to swipe him. So I'm happy. I'm happy for this guy. He's standing up for what he believes in, but he's also calling out a, a guy that later on they go, yeah, well, what was that about? He goes, yeah, I don't really uh, feel bad for him because he's a loser. I was like, this is fantastic. I, I love how much hate the Astros are getting these past couple of weeks. I mean, I just love that, like, their big three has, like, garbage stats. Oh, garbage stats. And you mentioned the Astros shame tour and the, um, the, the social media handle that they have. They just got more followers than Carlos Correa. <laughs> so yes. keep that yes. up. I guess before we close out, I do have one more baseball piece of news um, that I would consider important. Um, Marcus Stroman opts out yeah, from the Mets. And the real big you know, to-do over it is because he hasn't pitched yet and he reached certain amount of like eligibility this season. That, right, it's service time, I think. Yeah, right? service time that he's a free agent um, next year. So the Mets like – it wasn't a big trade, but the Mets did give up some pieces. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Kaye is the big one. Yeah. The, the UConn kid who's a big lefty, and he's honestly going to have a pretty good career for Toronto. It might be a trade piece even, too. Exactly. That's not good. In Toronto, like, as Yankee fans, you know, Toronto is one of those teams that we have to keep an eye out, you know, besides the Rays, who just absolutely kicked in our teeth this week. <sighs> um, but – you know, Marcus Stroman's a decent number two, number three pitcher who, I mean, I would love if the Yankees picked him up next year, but he'll be a, he won't be a Met. I'll tell you that. No. And, and that's the, the growing sentiment among Mets fans now too. It's that this is his declaration of saying so long, right? He has three months. Um, he's been very vocal, especially about social issues, which, He's using his platform for good, but he's also picking a lot of fights across the MLB too with fans, media, reporters. I don't think he ends up back in New York again. I really don't. I, I'm, I'm very much agreeing with you on this. And as far as suitors go, I, I don't think the Yankees will be one of them. It would be nice to see him in a Yankee uniform, but they might call him. I don't think he ends up in the pinstripes this year or next year, I should say. I think my gut tells me he, he's going to want to go out west, try to compete somewhere. Um, I, I guess mean, he's possibly picking him up. I, I don't know. He's a New York kid, um, Long Island born. Yeah. He's born a Yankees fan, not a Mets fan. That's a very um, good point. <laughs> but, I mean, besides that, I would say it's 50-50. Because he's no ace. He's not. No, not, not at this point in his career. He's, he's a good – Middle of the rotation guy, I think. He's a little too good to be the four or five person, but if he ends up in the Bronx, he's going to be the five starter. That's yeah. how it has to be, you know? And the Yankees will have those question marks because you have uh, two free agents next year in the pitching department, and that's Tanaka and Paxton. And Let's not forget Jay Happ, right? <laughs> that experiment. God, he, he, might, he might be six feet under by the time the season's over. He, he, won't, he will not be on the team the remainder of this year, I don't think. I sure as shit hope not. But the question mark was that, okay, you have two very good pitchers. Will the Yankees sign both? Will they let them both walk? Will they keep one or they won't? 
And in the beginning of the season, you know, I was leaning more towards Tanaka than Paxton just because of the service time here and how clutch he was. But, you know, Paxton was an ace for the Mariners, so I would not, you know, shun that away. And then Paxton obviously had that, uh, the back surgery, and then he was, like, losing his velocity. I'm like, oh, Paxton's playing like shit. They'll probably sign Tanaka. Tanaka got hit with a line ball, and then he came back. Still with an innings count, but he's been pitching – uh, fairly decent. And then this weekend, Paxton threw a gem, even though the Yankees lost. So, yeah. I, I don't know. They're, they're, that's mm-hmm. another one that it's like Paxton uh, versus Tanaka. And we'll go to the Yankees another day, you know, but um, there's two big, if you sign both of them, you're set. You can't really sign anyone else the next offseason if they do that. But if they do elect to go one of them, they could probably afford someone like Marcus Stroman after that too. It might make sense. He's a little out of, you know, I don't want to say out of their budget because he's not, but no. for his ability right now, you're going to overpay for him pretty much. You get the personality, you get the teammate, you get all that stuff. Um, I don't know if that's an expense the Yankees want to incur. Uh, I, I can see them signing for like a four-year deal. I don't fucking want that. I don't want that. No, no. Give them a one-year prove it. Especially when you have guys like, Montgomery, Michael King, and Clark Schmidt, and Debbie, yeah. who that could be the future with Garrett Cole. And well, we, we need to start seeing more of them. We also the can't forget about Severino. Yeah, Sevy will be back. He'll saw it on Twitter. Garrett Cole and Luis Severino is a one-two. That you miss that right now. You know, you it miss is. Cole having a gem of a game, and then the next day you have Severino pitching. I mean, that I, I miss that. I, that's what I need. Because it just helps out that entire rotation, you know. Then you have Paxton at three and Tanaka at four, and that's just less stress on them. Yeah, and then you can have the confidence to slide a guy like Montgomery in five, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, I don't know. Um, Yankees, a full Yankees one will come at some point, but that's what's going on in baseball. Baseball's back, which is very good. Besides a few hiccups with the Marlins and the Cardinals and a little bit of the Phillies, I think we've been doing a good job. For the most part, we've administered a lot of tests that are negative, which is great. And hopefully baseball can continue. I I think they're on the right track. I really do. They've just got to stop doing dumb shit, which hopefully we've got everything out and there's no clubs that they can go to, right? So uh, they just got to stay out of Miami. Those fucking Harlins are going to want to take them out. Like, God forbid. The Yankees are going to have to go to Miami soon. And I can just fucking see Gary Sanchez, like, still hitting – a hundred and going out with a couple guys to go to the club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that is uh, about all we've got for sports this week. Positivity corner. We've got a, an interesting one here. Now, I don't think I've heard this yet. So, what yes, we got? this is from the Daily Mail. Uh, special education teacher is hailed as hero after turning her pickup truck into a portable classroom and driving two hours to visit us autistic children and students after school is canceled in Mexico. Um, so this teacher, an elementary school teacher in Apasio El Alto, Guanajuato, her name is Nay. Um, she works with special needs students, particularly with autism. So obviously school was canceled and closed in most of the world. So she turned her pickup truck into a small little office in the bed and would drive up to two, three, four hours to visit different students to help them with their schoolwork. Um, she did this while practicing social distancing 
using hand sanitizer and disinfectants, wearing a mask, and um, just overall good story just to, you know, highlight during these crazy times and show that there's still some good people in the world. So we definitely praise her. And, you know, we were talking about that today, you know, the evolution and change of schools during this shit. And, you know, you feel for people that, you know, they need the social interaction and the one-on-one -on -one help and they can't get it because, you know, the virus. So we right. praise Nay and we love this story. We want to highlight it. For sure. And think about, you know, you make a, a great point to follow that up. Um, think about all the people in education, like the educators that, you know, especially the ones that are dealing with kids with disabilities and, um, you know, things like that, where their jobs uh, for as burdensome as it is on the parents and, you know, the family, which we all know, and we're not, you know, dismissing by any means, um, it, it's equally as hard for people who are responsible for educating those children and for ultimately ensuring that they have a good quality of life outside the family um, realm and, you know, exposing them to what their life will become. So it's something that a lot of people don't think about initially, um, you know, even with a, a kid that doesn't have a disability or any real burdensome, um, you know, upbringing, it, it's hard enough to raise a kid. And now I'm 23 years old. I have not raised a child. Um, but what we're trying to do here is acknowledge the fact that that is extremely hard to do right now. Um, like, I, I don't know how I could do it right now no. uh, with my kid being home 24 seven. No. Uh, you got to find new ways to entertain them. You've got to find creative ways to help them learn too. I mean, you, you ultimately now have that responsibility to make sure your child is understanding quite literally everything that they're taking in, which is not a whole lot with remotely, uh, you know, logging in on an iPad. So, so good for this woman. She's making it work is the bottom line in Mexico too. She's driving hours up the road. So, um, good for her. This is a great story as usual. Um, we haven't gotten a lot of positive news DMs yet. We, we've gotten a lot of reviews, but if you've got positive news, DM us because we will feature it on Positivity Corner. Uh, did we forget anything before we plug everything or is this episode 17? Episode 17 in the books. Quick blog plug, house-enterprise.com <coughs> slash the-blog. Uh, we've got Frosty Boy Fridays every Friday coming up as well. Should be good stuff. Uh, the BBB podcast with dots in between them on Instagram and underscores on Twitter. Uh, we've got more content coming out this week. I will try to review some more beer and catch up to Ryan. Um, but a couple of other things that we've been working on. Uh, stay tuned for episode 18 next week. Of course, find us on Anchor, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We will come to Apple Podcasts soon. We're trying to figure out a few things there. But for all of us here at House Enterprise, that's Will and I'm Jake. So long, folks. Take it easy. Mm -hmm.